set list in association with Seven Digital. This week, business streaming, DistroKid and Fender. Welcome to Setlist, the music business podcast from CMU. I'm Andy Malt. With me is Chris Cook. Hello, Chris. Hello there. As ever, we're going to be taking a look back through what's happened in the last week in the music business. A week in which, just about, I think, Chris Cook returned from Indonesia. Yeah, I was out in Indonesia. And uh, have you got lots of insights about the Indonesian music industry to give us now to fill this section of the show? They're like cassettes. Do they? The cassette revival is happening, well, certainly in the little bit of Jakarta I was hanging out in. Now, admittedly, the festival I went over to, which was a great little festival with some showcases on a couple of days and then a conference. That's why I was there. I was talking at the conference. It was in the bit of Jakarta. It was kind of like the Shoreditch of Jakarta. It was quite sort of hipsterish, lots of little bars. So maybe it was just there. You know, if you came to Shoreditch... You might think there's a cassette revival going on here, and there clearly isn't. Yeah. But (laughs) it did seem, well, certainly, I arrived a bit later than everyone else. My trip to Jakarta was quite fleeting. But a couple of other people who were speaking, so there was Simon Raymond from the Bella Union, and there was Gareth Main from the Independent Music Podcast. Look at us plugging other podcasts that you might want to listen to. (laughs) So they were both there, and they'd been there a little bit earlier. So they'd met lots of local artists, and they'd all been pitching their music. And they'd both got, like I'd say, about 10 cassettes that they'd been given in their bags. Oh, wow. So they were both going back to the UK thinking, I mean, where is my cassette? Two people having 20 cassettes between them does sound like a revival. As Simon pointed out, when he was asked about the cassette revival during his bit in the conference by somebody in the room who was clearly running a cassette label. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously, Simon's a nice guy. He wasn't going to say, what a terrible idea. You've set up a whole company doing cassettes. But he did point out, you know how with the vinyl revival... I'm aware of it. We suspect slash know that a certain portion, a significant portion of the people who are buying the vinyl aren't actually listening to it. Yeah, idiots. They just Idiots who deserve to be flogged in the streets. They buy it because they want something to touch, they like the artwork, they like the experience, but... Idiots. They will listen to the music on Spotify or their streaming platform of choice. So, if that is what your fans are doing, as Simon pointed out, well, you might as well sell them a cassette, because cassettes are much cheaper to produce, and... Easier to store. You don't have an eight-month waiting list to to get on the presses. So you can get cassettes done for well, I think they were saying over there I mean obviously it'd be a lot cheaper over there but it was like about a pound per cassette to have it made and they could do it in a couple of weeks so you can sort of see there is a bit of logic if it's just in essence to sell a bit of merch it might as well be cassettes rather than vinyl so that's one of the things I learned do you want to know the other thing I learned uh... we are on a deadline this week oh, okay yeah. but I'm going to give you this well... other fact before I got to Indonesia I exchanged... No I, no, I want fact about Indonesia only. It's about Indonesia. It's just a fact I found out before no. that I then confirmed while I was there. Oh, OK. OK, there was research in the... I only want things that were definitely confirmed within the country. And actually, I had this confirmed on the flight. I was doing oh, some emailing oh. on the flight. Were you in Indonesia at that point? No, because this was on the first bit of the flight. So it wasn't confirmed in Indonesia? It was confirmed about... No, hang on. You see, you're confusing things here. I'm not. I was told I fact, want things you learned... In Indonesia. That's what this section of the show is all about. And you're now telling me something you learned before you were there. No, but the confirmation was definitely in Jakarta. Right. So I was exchanging some emails with Will Page from Spotify about some stuff. And I said, I'm on my way to Indonesia. And he said, oh, fact. Did you know that the biggest seller of CDs in Indonesia is KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken? 
And I said, I did not know that. Now, you have to bear in mind that the Indonesian recorded music market, it's something like 90% digital. So they're not selling very many CDs anyway. But the biggest seller of CDs in Indonesia is KFC. So it happened that just around the corner from my hotel, there was a KFC. So I went in to have a look. And sure enough, on the counter, there were these sort of glass cases with all the latest CDs. And then every member of staff had a CD around their neck. which I'm assuming was record of the week or something. In the case or like just on a bit of string in the case, through the on, hole? <laughs> in the case on a piece of string. And then when you ordered your food, they would then hold up the CD and say, would you like a CD with your meal? And they have a, you know, like a Happy Meal no type thing. No one's that hungry. Which comes with a CD in it. And so there they were selling their CDs. So I can confirm. I don't know if I can't confirm they are the biggest seller of CDs. I had to take Will Pages for that fact. Is he trustworthy? Probably on that sort of thing. Mm. But I can definitely confirm that they do sell CDs with chicken in KFC in Indonesia. I can also confirm that KFC chicken in Indonesia is just as bad as KFC chicken here in the UK. Well, in Japan, it's traditional to have KFC for your Christmas lunch. Is it? Yeah. With a CD? I've never actually been into KFC in Japan because KFC is terrible. Why would you go, I mean, even to confirm something, why would you go in there? I mean, you could just go and look at the CDs. You don't need to buy it. I have to think that there is some J-pop act somewhere that has fought to bundle CDs with KFCs because they like but I think creating stupid reasons to I buy CDs. I think KFC makes most of its money around Christmas. Anyway. Anyway. That's, that's, I went to that's, Jakarta. That's not even related to the music industry. To this little festival. It was great. Uh, if you're ever in Jakarta... <laughs> At this time of year, do check out the Archipelago Festival, it was called. Some showcases and some conference stuff. Thank you to everyone who invited me. Has anything else happened in the last seven days other than me going to Jakarta? Well, the Music Modernisation Act became law. Donald Trump signed his little uh, signature on that bit of paper. And then Kanye West, for reasons no one seems to understand, talked a lot. Yeah, that happened while I was in Indonesia. But it's true It that... didn't happen in Indonesia, though. No. That but we're still a... talking about it. That would have been a bit odd. As I was leaving London... That isn't a bit odd about this whole story. <laughs> as I was leaving London, everyone seemed convinced that Kanye West was going to be in attendance. Well, that it, I think it had been announced that he would. No, it hadn't. It had been and... announced that Donald Trump and Kanye West were going to have a meeting right. over lunch on the same day. I see. And so people assume, well, hang on a second, if he's coming to the White House anyway, surely, because it was known they had invited a few... Well, there were lots of, yeah, musicians and, and music business people who'd been involved in the MMA... We're going to be there for the signing. But only old white men. So therefore, Kanye didn't fulfill that criteria. So perhaps he wasn't invited for the signing of the act bit. But it did sort of overshadow it, didn't it? Yes, this this piece of legislation, reforming American copyright law, that, well, I mean, we've talked about it for about 82 years before we count anyone else in the American music industry. A lot has been said about it. And then in the end, the whole signing of it into law got very overshadowed by Kanye West. I don't know. It's getting again to the point... Do you remember this happened about 18 months ago where you start to question yourself mocking Kanye <laughs> because it sort of feels like you're watching a guy have a breakdown in front of Donald Trump in the Oval Office. And it's interesting watching it. Half the world sort of laughing at it. It's like, ah, oh, stupid Kanye. And then half the world being like, oh my God, what's happening with Kanye West? <laughs> Something must be done. Well, it's hard to know because I do think Kanye is and has always been playing a character. But playing that character has clearly through events of the past uh, had some effect on him and so yeah it's hard to know whether he's playing the character or needs a bit of help <laughs> so uh yeah i'm not sure anyone was quite sure on that day but it is certainly true that kanye waffling about nonsense for 10 minutes solid in front of donald trump 
kind of dominated Even the Even Donald Trump looked confused. He did. <laughs> <laughs> but what's relevant to us isn't Kanye waffling in the White House. What's relevant to us is that the MMA, the Music Modernization Act, is now law, which means that the American music industry that campaigned for that need to set up this mechanical rights collecting society that the law is instigating. Big test is, does that mean anyone will get paid? What it will certainly mean is all those lawsuits against Spotify for not paying mechanical royalties, there can't be any more of them. No. The ones still working their way through the system, including that ridiculously big one by Wixon, the billion-dollar one, will continue to go through the motions, but there can't be any new ones. doesn't necessarily mean that songwriters will start getting paid. So we will watch that and see what's happening. But that's not really what we're here to talk about today. No, because if nothing else, we've really talked about that enough already. All you need to know is that now it's law and some stuff will probably happen. And we'll come back to it when everyone realises that songwriters still aren't getting paid in two years' time. (laughs) But what we're actually going to look at this week is Spotify buddying up with digital distribution service DistroKid, or buddying up a bit more, I should probably say, and new research that shows that half of new guitar players are women. But first... There's been some new research commissioned by a leading provider of B2B streaming, Soundtrack Your Brand, which is another Spotify-backed company, which reckons that the music community is missing out on $2.65 billion per year because businesses are using personal streaming services to stream music to their customers. In commercial spaces. Yes. Earlier this year, when Spotify published all the information about its listing on the New York Stock Exchange. So that was way back, right at the start of the year. Yeah. And I was at the Belong Festival in Oslo. And I had decided I was going to write a See Me Trends article saying, OK, this is a, a big moment in Spotify's development. Let's have a look at where Spotify is at. And obviously, we talked about this on Setlist, when the listing was happening on the New York Stock Exchange and all the analysts and people were dissecting whether or not Spotify was a company you might want to invest in, the investment community sort of seemed split between the half that said, oh, Spotify's got the most momentum in this space, they're by far the market leader, and streaming is just going to boom, 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 and down the line, it's definitely something you want to be part of, versus the other half who were saying, this company has never made a penny. (laughs) They have to hand over 70% of their money every month to the music industry. Who would want to invest in this loss-making business? And so the CMU Trends article we published around about that time was looking at, okay, Spotify is going to have to go into profit at some point. Can it go into profit simply by reaching a scale where the subscription money starts to become commercially viable? And if not, how else could it make money? Could it become a record company, which everyone is desperate for Spotify to become a record company that signs artists? Could it become a director fan company, a ticketing company, a merch company? What else could it do to try and generate income? And I remember... As I was writing that article, I was having dinner with a couple of people who come from very different perspectives, but both have a lot of knowledge about the streaming business. One more from a licensing perspective, one more from a label publisher perspective. And I said, OK, I'm writing this article. What do you think of all these different ways that a company like Spotify could make money? Which of these do you think are viable? And so it's like, do you think that if they continue to grow at the current pace, they'll reach a certain number of subscribers where subscription money alone will make them commercially viable? And they were like, no. No. <laughs> that's not going to happen. And they had various reasons why they didn't think that was going to happen. And they're like, okay, what about advertising? Because obviously around the direct listing, Spotify was saying, oh, there's still lots of potential for advertising. And they were like, no, never going to make enough money at advertising. You may make more than you're currently making, but you're never going to make that much money. It's like, okay, well, what about getting into ticketing and merch? And I'm like, no, they don't want to get into ticketing and merch. I want to become a record company. Like, they're insane. They don't want to become a record company. And the only thing really that people around the table felt was a way where there was this big untapped pile of cash that companies like Spotify could go after was what we're talking about now, which was business-to-business streaming, which is to say bars, cafes, clubs, workplaces who have Spotify or indeed any streaming company streaming over the PA system 
Obviously, that's commercial, it's business streaming. So in exactly the same way, if you have a company like Sky, the TV network, they make a huge amount of money by every single pub that has Sky TV playing. Because if you're a pub that plays Sky Sports events, yeah. you pay way more than somebody who is just watching Sky Sports in their own home. And so they were saying that B2B streaming, which is something that Spotify have been dabbling in, that's the one thing where they thought, yeah, there was huge potential for growth here. Maybe this is the thing that will allow a company like Spotify to become commercially viable. But in order for that to work, which is what this report was about, the people who run these commercial premises need to know <laughs> that they can't just play their £10 a month Spotify subscription to their customers and that's all they need to do. Yeah. Now, obviously, Soundtrack Your Brand being in that business has an interest in a report saying there's loads of money to be made in this area. But, I mean, it was properly carried out research. I mean, normally when you get these press releases through, it's like, we asked four people who we know what they thought, and they said this, and now here's a stat. But this was uh, this research was carried out by Nielsen Music. They sampled 5,000 small business owners in the UK, the US, Sweden, Spain, Italy, Germany, and France who play music in their commercial spaces. And they found that 83% of them we're using personal streaming accounts to play music to staff and customers, which, I mean, it's not, I'm sure if you're a person walking around, you probably didn't need that research to be done to know, because, I mean, every time you go into a cafe, you'd see on the counter a laptop playing Spotify or whatever, you know, usually Spotify. So I would say that, that you know, just by walking around looking at stuff, that seems to be pretty much correct. But that's not legal. No. Not allowed to do that. Are these cafe owners... And these gym owners and these shop owners, are they not reading the terms and conditions when they sign up? Apparently not. Are they not going from beginning to end and reading every single one of those? But why is it not? In the olden days, you'd just have a CD player and you'd put a CD in it. And no one said, no, you need a special business CD player that costs more to do that. You just got your PPL and your PRS license and away you went. Why can't you just do that with streaming? Well, it all comes down to whether or not you are further exploiting the controls of the copyright, as I call them. And if you are, do you have a license to exploit the controls of the copyright in that way? And what are the terms of that license? So what I mean by that is, when you have a CD... Which I do. Did you buy it from KFC in no. Jakarta? No. When you have a CD, the copyright is exploited at the point at which the CD is pressed. Okay, so I would say the reproduction bit and the distribution bit of the copyright are exploited by pressing the CD and then sticking it in a record shop and selling it to you. But then each subsequent play of the CD, that's not further exploiting the copyright, except when you play it in a public space, because you mentioned when you're playing CDs to do that legally, yes, you don't need a special CD or a special CD player, but you do need a license from the collecting societies from PPL and PRS, because by playing it in public, you are exploiting another bit of the copyright, which is the performance control. So you have a license from PPL and PRS, and then how you use the CD is subject to that. Whereas when you play a Spotify stream, Every single time a track streams on Spotify, it is further exploiting the copyright. There is a little bit more copying, there's a little bit more communicating. So every single stream is subject to a license, and therefore the terms of that license. And as a Spotify subscriber, we're talking about the terms of your subscription, and then in turn, obviously, Spotify is exploiting other people's music, and it has its own contracts with the record companies, music publishers, collection societies. And likewise, the terms of those licenses will say, you are only allowed under this kind of subscription to allow people to listen to music in a private space. It should also be why you can only listen to Spotify in one place at a time. So when, say, your daughter puts on the Frozen soundtrack in the kitchen for the 500th time, 
it will stop playing in your office upstairs. And this is all to do with the terms and conditions of your subscription, which are in turn informed by the terms and conditions of the licence that Spotify has with the labels and the publishers and the collecting societies. So yes, what that means is if you're playing a CD in a shop, then once you've bought the CD, that's fine, but you still need a PPL and PRS licence when you start playing that music in public because that constitutes a public performance. It kind of links into the whole thing that when you play radio in a public space, you still need a PPL PRS license, even though the radio station has a license. Radio stations don't like that. They call that double taxation. But again, it's a kind of a similar sort of thing. The radio station has a license also from PPL and PRS, but that only allows a communication or a broadcast of the music. And then the subsequent playing of that music in a public space is exploiting a different bit of the copyright, the performance bit, and therefore it needs a separate license. So it all comes down to which bits of the copyright are you exploiting when, and then you need a license every time you do that, and what are the T's and C's of the license. And hence why anybody who is playing Spotify in a public space, even if they have their PPL and their PRS license, so they are covered when it comes to the public performance bit, but they are in breach of the terms and conditions of Spotify, and therefore in breach of the original license from the music industry. And the reason why the music industry puts that limitation on its licenses to Spotify and indeed Spotify has a vested interest in this too, is that everybody sees there is a potentially huge extra market, as I say, by charging companies an additional fee in order to play music in a public space. And of course, that's what this company, Soundtrack Your Brand, is all about. Spotify actually had their own business doing this in Scandinavia called Spotify for Business. And then some ex-Spotify people set up this new company, Soundtrack Your Brand, they then went to raise some money. I think it, their first investor was Spotify. So Spotify was the first company mm. to put money in, although they've since raised other investment. Then Spotify said to this company, well, you might as well actually deliver the Spotify for Business service. And then they subsequently phased out Spotify for Business. So now if you want to use Spotify in a commercial premises, this is the company that you have to go to, yeah. in which Spotify has equity. So as you said at the start, this company has a vested interest in everybody knowing <laughs> that you can't play Spotify on a personal account or Apple or Tidal or Deezer or any of the others in a commercial property because what they're basically saying with this research to every cafe, gym, shop owner is, oi, stop using your Spotify £10 a month subscriptions, come and get a subscription from us because then you will be legal. I know in some countries they've actually done deals with the collecting societies where they bundle that bit in as well. So you would only need to have a single license. Yeah. I don't know if they've done that in every country. They certainly have in some. But in essence, this whole piece of research was trying to get the word out to people who are using a personal Spotify subscription in a commercial premises that they need to get themselves a B2B account. Hey, why not with Soundtrack Your Brands? And of course, the whole point of that is they want to make more money because it's more expensive. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's more than three times as expensive as a personal Spotify account. But you have all your licenses covered and who doesn't like having licenses? Yeah, you get to sleep at night knowing that you're doing things legally. Yes, and uh, that's, there's a lot of people currently, I would imagine, probably sleeping quite soundly, but not doing things legally because Nielsen estimated a global market of 29.4 million small businesses with a physical location and then from that reckoned that 21.3 million were potentially using a personal streaming service rather than a B2B streaming service and that's how they reach the $2.65 billion a year figure. And with the way that Soundtrack Your Brand then spun their research, they were basically saying this is money lost to the music industry. I mean, it, it's also money lost well, to actually, them. Well, actually, they, they spun it as this is money lost to our 
artists. Exactly, yes. They did not say the music industry. You're right. They were saying that songwriters and artists are losing all of this money, where what they really mean is the music industry at large is losing all this money, including us and, of course, Spotify, who are sort of all linked into this. So even if tomorrow every single business in the world who are currently using a Spotify personal subscription or similar with a rival in a commercial space were to suddenly sign up to soundtrack your brand or any other B2B streaming services out there, and this 2.65 billion suddenly started coming in. Yeah, that's not all going to go into the pockets of artists and songwriters. No, but obviously one thing the music industry might say is, well, this is all well and good. Sure, that money might be out there, but people aren't going to be willing to get this special business streaming service that costs three times as much. But Nielsen headed them off. They asked people how much music they were playing in their stores and nearly 90% said they were playing music four to five days per week. Over 80% said that music was important or very important to their business. And then 86% said that they would be willing to pay more for a service that meant that they were all legal and all the licenses were covered and everything was fine. You said that the music industry might be pragmatic and say, oh, but would people be willing to pay this extra money? We are getting some money from these people. It's not like they're paying nothing. Having said that, I suspect that a chunk of the music industry would say, screw whether or not they're willing to pay for it. They have to pay for it. Let's sue them. And I suppose that throws up an interesting question here, because who would have the rights to sue? And I suspect it would probably have to be Spotify, who would have to take action against these people because they have a contractual relationship with Spotify. And I don't know whether the copyright owners themselves, whether the music industry could sue. This soundtrack your brand couldn't sue because they don't have a... So if it got to the point of the music industry cracking down on this and going after that, you know, 20 quid markup per premises, forcing people to take these commercial accounts, I don't quite know who would have to lead on that. Well, yeah, because if you don't have a PRS licence, it's PRS who come after you, isn't it? Correct, and likewise with PPL. But let's say you have the PRS and PPL licence, but you're using the Spotify yeah, yeah, yeah. personal account. But it's your contract with Spotify that you've breached. Exactly, so probably Spotify would have to come after you. So I don't know, I sort of sense that maybe the whole point of doing this research and pushing it out there as step one is saying to everybody, hey, you're doing this wrong. We want you to go legal and voluntarily stop paying a little bit more money, but know that you're doing it right. But it'll be interesting to see down the line. Given that, I think the Spotify's of this world will recognise, as they get to the point where they have to start making a profit, that, as I said at the outset, this is a as yet not properly tapped revenue stream. Plus, The music industry at some point is going to start obsessing about this too. And when we get to that point, if let's say, even if half of the people who are currently doing it illegally sign up to a soundtrack your brand type service, of the other half who don't, it would be interesting to know, well, who actually pursues the action on that. And we should remember, just to round this off, that, uh, well, this is very much framed as, I mean, I think Rolling Stone's headline even was basically, your local cafe is probably breaking the law. If you're more likely listening to this sitting in an office, or you are maybe going on a train on your way to sit in an office, or coming home. My point is, you probably work in an office, and your office might play music. And your office is probably breaking the law as well. If you're playing a personal Spotify account, if there's more than two people, then uh, the law's being broken. So I just want you all to know that you're very bad people. Andy also hasn't read the Spotify terms and conditions, so isn't quite I read them every time. On what the limitations are. Obviously, there are also the rules at what point you would need a PPL and PRS license for your office, which is a lot sooner than you probably think. It's like five people, isn't if it? If it's a really Four small office. People. But uh, then, of course, there is what are Spotify's rules, which are presumably somewhere there in the T's and C's. So, yes, office people, get your PPL and PRS license. But more than that, 
get your proper Spotify account sorted. Why are we saying that? We don't care, do we? I really don't care. Hey, here's a solution. I work alone. Just listen so to I use my personal account. Just listen to podcasts. And then this wouldn't be an issue. Although maybe it would be if you listen to podcasts on Spotify. Stop listening to this podcast on Spotify. <laughs> listen to Wait, it. Hang on. <laughs> listen to it on another podcast thing. Listen to it on Audio Boom. And then you can listen to the podcast without anybody's licenses. And then just listen to spoken I know I word. Read their terms and conditions. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. Conclusion is just listen to this podcast on a loop and you should be fine. Yeah. Still to come, Fender's new research on how it's been really messing up who it markets guitars to for just years. But first, more streaming and more Spotify. Because, you know, Spotify has announced a deal with DIY digital distribution service DistroKid to enhance its new direct upload feature, which we discussed recently on the show. Yeah, so let's quickly recap that. So that's so a direct happened. upload feature. Recapped. John. During uh, that happened during Reaper Barn. Everything seems to happen while I'm at some sort of music conference. Maybe that's because I'm constantly at music conferences these days. But that is Spotify adding to its Spotify for Artists platform a little tool. It's currently in sort of invite only beta, but the plan is to roll it out to everybody so that a DIY artist can go onto the Spotify for Artists website and upload their track into the Spotify system, which will get their music onto Spotify. They would then start earning royalties from that. Because obviously, to date, the only way that an artist can get their music into the Spotify system and earn money off that is to either have a record company to handle that for them, or a distributor. And for most sort of DIY artists at the start of their career, that would mean working with what we call the DIY distributors. So companies like TuneCore and Ditto and DistroKid, who will basically get anybody's music onto the streaming services Sometimes in return for a commission, although sort of the classic model for most of those services to date has been that they charge you an upfront relatively modest fee per single, per album or whatever, and then you get 100% of the royalties back. And when Spotify announced that they were sort of developing this direct upload tool, we talked about it here on Setlist, and the one thing that we noted, and indeed, you know, everyone else who's commenting on this pretty much had the same conclusion, which was, although it's interesting that Spotify are adding this direct upload tool and in some ways are seemingly therefore cutting out the distributors and the labels, but particularly the DOI distributors like TuneCore and Ditto and DistroKid, that said, no artist just wants their music on Spotify. Artists need to have their music everywhere, particularly once we go global and you go into countries where Spotify either doesn't exist or it's not very big. Yeah. And so we were saying you would still need a distributor to get onto everybody else and kind of what's the point in having to manage... It just adds an extra bit of admin into your day. Exactly. Why be uploading your track over here into Spotify and then over here into a distributor to get to everybody else? So therefore, what's the bloody point of this direct upload tool? Only idiots, <laughs> artists who don't know what they're doing, would be using it. But yeah, this DistroKid Alliance that was announced last week is in essence Spotify dealing with that issue. Yes, so it means you could take advantage of this direct upload thing and all the extra features that you get by doing that, but it'll also pump everything into the other streaming services and digital music services as well at the same time. So DistroKid has been an increasingly buzzy DIY distributor. So it has been around for quite a while now. And it's been quite closely aligned to Spotify for quite a while. Well, that's the interesting thing that, yes, so DistroKid is a competitor to the sort of TuneCore, CD Baby, Ditto type companies. And in recent years, it's got an ever-increasing profile. But what has been interesting is Spotify for Artists, so that's, that's obviously the Spotify website that's aimed at the artist community and the management community, which is where this new direct upload tool is based. Mm. 
But there's also lots of pages on that website offering advice to artists. And one of those pages is, how do you get your music into Spotify? And prior to the talk of this new direct upload tool, so until a few weeks ago, that page said, oh, it's easy to get your music into Spotify. There's an assortment of services you can use. And then it listed some. And I don't actually know how long the page has been set up like this, but it's been there for a while. The first one it lists is DistroKid. And basically, Mm. it's the only one. It has a massive DistroKid logo. And it says, DistroKid is a way to get your music into Spotify. Oh, and then there's also. And then it lists a couple more. I can't remember which ones they are. And then it sort of mentions The Orchard and Fuga, the sorts of companies that tend to work more with labels or more established artists. But it has felt for a while that they are definitely pushing DistroKid before everybody else, which is why when it was announced that now Spotify had this formal relationship with DistroKid. DistroKid were going to be involved in this new upload tool. And And Spotify has taken a minority stake in it. They have put a little bit of money into DistroKid. So they were seemingly keen to play that bit down, weren't they? They, I can't remember the exact words they used, but they were very much saying it's a really small stake. It's not that we're going to take control. It said the the end of the the statement about like how exciting this is. And then it just says, as part of this partnership, Spotify has made a passive minority investment in DistroKid. Not just a minority investment, a passive one. <laughs> what does that even mean? I mean, it sounds like the money just fell out of their pocket <laughs> and DistroKid picked it up. I mean, oh, well, there's no point trying to get that back now. But just a couple of days before this was announced, DistroKid had already told the world that it had raised a whole load more cash from a big finance firm. So maybe that was all part of this, so that they could say, oh, that's really where our money's coming from, this little contribution. I mean, Spotify have just thrown a few euro into the hat, (laughs) passively somehow. Passively, yes. But it is interesting because on one level, it does seem like a really good alliance for DistroKid. I mean, exactly how it's going to work, we don't yet know, because the direct upload thing is still very much on an invite-only beta. But it's even more Spotify pushing DistroKid as being the preferred way for DIY artists to get their music in the system. So that's definitely giving DistroKid an advantage over all the other DIY distributors before the Spotify upload tool gets rolled out across the board. And bearing in mind that, you know, a lot of people when they're first starting out and they're first deciding how do I get my music onto Spotify, etc., may well end up on the Spotify for Artists website not really knowing about all the different distributors they could choose from or how it works. And if Spotify is saying this is our preferred supplier, maybe ultimately it will be the only one listed. Mm. Who knows? I mean, once they've got even a passive small stake, it's in their interest to push people to DistroKid. You have to think that that will help DistroKid get more artists over its competitors. Yeah, but there's another side to this, a possible issue with this, and probably why Spotify is quite so keen to play down its involvement financially with DistroKid is that if the other services suddenly look at DistroKid and go, that's Spotify's distribution service, not going to take content from them anymore. And then the kind of the USP of like, this allows you to upload content to everywhere is gone because it will say Apple, especially if Apple Music says, well, we're not taking anything from DistroKid anymore. That suddenly made it nowhere near as appealing as it might be at this point. Yeah, so that is the interesting potential fallout of this. Now, I suppose, again, that's why Spotify is saying, passive because the reason that you might cut off a content provider is if you think one of your competitors can see maybe how tracks are performing on your service through that partner. Yeah, I mean, would Apple Music 
stop taking music off a distributor. Who knows? But yeah, you're right. I mean, if it was, that would be the reason. Yeah. It would be the concern. Well, hang a second. Spotify is now an investor in this business. Does that mean they're starting to see DistroKid data, which will mean that they start to see how DIY artists are performing on Apple and on Amazon and on Tidal and on Deezer? And it's when rivals can get to see your data that people get nervous about this kind of thing. So obviously, given what Spotify is saying, we're not suggesting that Spotify will get to see any DistroKid data. And I don't think the Apples and Amazons of this world are going to react to this anytime soon. But if down the line, it just feels that Spotify and DistroKid are getting closer and closer and closer together, then it may well be that some of Spotify's competitors do start to get concerned about dealing with DistroKid, or maybe they become more demanding when they re-sign deals with DistroKid down the line. So in the short term, it seems like it's good for DistroKid because Spotify are pushing them forward to potential artists who may use their service. It's kind of good for Spotify because it means that the great weakness of their new direct upload tool is overcome through this alliance. So good for both sides in this relationship short term, but long term down the line, it might be that it backfires for one or the other. And you almost get to the situation like we have in China, where just because it's a new market and things work very differently there, you do have that system, don't you, where Tencent, the big web company that has the big Tencent music division that's about to IPO. Tencent's a weird company in China in that it both operates the big streaming services in China, most importantly QQ Music, but it is also the exclusive distributor (laughs) of the major labels content in China. So you have a single company that is both the biggest service and the biggest distributor, which means that all the other services who are competing with QQ have to go to their competitor in order to access the music. So it's not quite on that extreme level yet. But it will be interesting to see whether or not these two companies get even closer together down the line. And if so, whether there's any fallout from that. And finally this week, Fender has done a bit of research, that being Fender, the guitar making company, rather than what Americans call a bumper. I'm not sure a bumper would have done any research. I don't think I needed to point that out, did I? Might be a very clever bumper. Might be. Smart bumper. An internet-connected bumper. That's the future. Fender, the guitar-making company, has done some research about why people pick up guitars and just the potential market for selling guitars because in this day and age when everyone wants to be a DJ, it's getting harder to sell guitars. They did this research in the US about three years ago and they've just done it in the UK and they found, among other things, that 50% of new guitar players are women which was reflected in the research in the US three years ago as well. And that is, I mean, possibly not surprising, but it does, I mean, in the US three years ago, it made Fender rethink its advertising because traditionally guitar advertising is very male focused. If there's a woman in a guitar advert, certainly when I was growing up, generally she has not got any clothes on and the guitar is hiding uh, her nudity and uh, she does not look like she has any interest in playing that guitar. Or indeed persuading other women to play guitars. No. So yeah, Fender did this research three years ago in the US and they did rethink their advertising because it was clearly an emerging trend. The CEO, Andy Mooney, announcing this new bit of research in the UK said that uh, some people, who I assume were just grumpy men, who wanted naked women in their adverts, said that it was just the Taylor Swift effect. Just because Taylor Swift's popular at the moment, more women are picking up guitars. But it can be a short-term thing. It's a short-term thing. They'll put them down because women can't play guitar. And, uh, and, and he said, no, that's not the case. That is a trend that has continued. It is continuing. And, uh, and it's important to recognise that. And, and he was saying, like, actually, Taylor Swift isn't really known for playing guitar much anymore. 
so that's by the by. I mean, you think, I mean, this, I think this trend has been apparent for longer than three years. There's uh, She Shreds magazine, which, I mean, that's been around for five years, which is a female-focused guitar magazine. And to stop a magazine reflecting that, there has to be a trend that goes back even further. So, yeah, women play guitars. That's the big news. Yeah, so that's the big takeaway yeah. from this week's <laughs> set list. But I suppose... The fact that this is making Fender rethink the way they sell their products, their guitars, is interesting. Because as you mentioned, the guitar business at large has been shrinking in recent years. It varies little from country to country, but certainly in big markets like America, generally people are buying less guitars than they used to. And obviously Fender's main competitor, Gibson, has sort of been going through bankruptcy recently. I mean, they insist that that's not because their guitar sales are down, it's because they stupidly dabbled in other instruments and electronics and stuff like that. But nevertheless, I mean, actually both Fender and Gibson in recent years have had periods where they seem to be struggling. And therefore, if you are a guitar maker, you need to be selling as many guitars as you can. And if and they've got women! <laughs> well, exactly. We only... never thought of them! If you've only been targeting your product at 49% of the population to date, and then sales are going down, well, a clearly obvious place to go is the other 51% of the population. So I think it is interesting to see that. I thought the other interesting thing that the boss guy was saying in this interview, which was sort of going beyond the... The boss offender, not boss... The, uh, the company that makes guitar pedals. Or indeed Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> he didn't, no, he didn't comment on this. So let's clarify, the boss of Fender. The other thing he was talking about was the challenge of being in the guitar business is that a lot of people who buy a guitar for the first time find that actually, while it's quite easy strumming along to, uh, I don't know, Let It Be. I used to like strumming to Let It Be. I think there are three chords in that entire <laughs> song. But actually doing all the really cool stuff, <laughs> like what, you know, the really famous guitar players would do, is actually quite hard work to learn how to do that. Yes. And so a lot of people within a year put the guitar down in the corner of their room and never pick it up again. Yeah. In some cases, they were saying within 90 days. Yeah, he said, uh, yeah, 90% of first-time players give up within the first 12 months, if not the first 90 days. But obviously, though, that 90% of people are not going to be buying a Fender as their first guitar. So you've got a market of 10% of those people who he said, you know, do tend to become really passionate guitar players and might then go up levels to become Fender owners. But uh, yeah, 90% of the people who initially pick up a guitar are never going to get to that level where they're giving Fender any money. And so he was saying they need to support more people in their kind of learning of the guitar. I mean, he was talking about focusing on that 10% of people, but really, you could be focusing on 100% of people knowing you're going to lose somewhere, try to lose less of them over yes. time if you give them more stuff to help them learn. And that, I mean, really, this research is promoting Fender's online service to help you learn to play the guitar. Yeah, so I suppose one of the challenges for the guitar-making industry, in addition to getting more people to buy guitars for the first time, and maybe that is partly uh, recognising that traditionally you've been missing out on 51% of the population, but also, yeah, what can you do? So of the 90% of people who actually find that playing guitar is quite tricky and they can't be bothered learning, I mean, probably the vast majority of those, that's something you can't stop but a portion of those people who are giving up within a year is there something you can do to help them get to the next stage because I suppose once you get to a certain competency playing the guitar then you are much more likely to be then playing it as a hobby for the rest of your life and therefore buying both new guitars and higher spec guitars as your passion grows. Yeah and there were other things that this research found like actually the majority of people who buy a guitar who start playing guitar do it just because 
They want to better themselves and they're not interested in becoming a rock star. In fact, half of people in the UK who were interviewed for this survey said that playing privately was their preferred way of playing, maybe playing to friends and family, but certainly not playing publicly, which was a higher level, 80% higher than in the US. So, yeah, people are buying guitars, but they do not want people to hear them play. But we don't want to hear them play. I don't want to hear them play. I've heard people play guitar. They're not very good at it. Good for everybody. But despite that, 42% did say they saw the guitar as part of their identity. So it clearly has a profound effect on, even if it is those 10% of people, um, it has a profound effect on, uh, on their lives. But that is all we've got time for this week. You should rate this podcast long as you're going to rate it highly you should review it as long as you're going to review it positively you should email i mean if you've got anything negative to say just email it and then we'll never tell anyone setlist at unlimitedmedia.co.uk you could get us on social media as well but that's public so yeah, positive only i would say setlist is the music business podcast from cmu it's presented by me andy malt and chris cook it's produced by matt Peaty. it's edited by jason wolf and for more on cmu go to completemusicupdate.com Recorded at Unique Facilities, Setlist is an unlimited production.